I'm really hungry, baby, so I'm not going to be funny for this. <laughs> you know what? I'm hungry, too. Yeah, I'm on strike. What should I eat? Are you on hunger strike? Yeah. Well, so, listen, if you can be like... I, I know I've talked about this on the show before, but... This Are you really doing your me. intermittent fasting bit? If you can do the fucking... If you can call just not eating breakfast intermittent fasting, then I get to call me being hungry and being grumpy intermittent hunger strike. <laughs> the same well, you, logic. So you're, it's just like you're going on strike for periods and then you're breaking strike and then you're going... Exactly. So yeah, you call yeah. it in the morning, you have break strike. Exactly. I, I, well, I, yeah, exactly. I cross the picket line to my kitchen and eat several hard-boiled eggs that I make throughout. I, at the beginning of the month, I boil about 300 eggs. And then I kind of just keep them around my kitchen like Easter eggs. Like I put remember? One in the salt jar. Wait, do you remember the thing about night eggs? No. What? No. What? <laughs> Wait. Was it a tweet or a piece? I can't remember if it was a tweet or like or like a article or something. Let me but it guess. Was like, Women have been laying eggs in the night now. No, no, it was. It's gross, sir. It was like some woman was saying that she kept. She got hungry in the middle of the night, mm. and she kept peeled hard boiled eggs next to her bed, what? and she would eat them, and she called it night eggs. Jesus. Most women I found just keep Italo Calvino books. A lamp and some like uh, crystals next to their bed. This is mm. this is. I don't know if this is an evolution or a devolution. Now, you want to know what I got on my bed bedside table right now? I got a magazine. Uh, I got a lint roller and I got a uh, uh, some Neosporin. I keep that them sounds, there at all times. Sounds lovely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got a. It's the, yeah, it's it's. It, I found that it's a real show of dominance when you have when you have not being funny anymore. He's, you're too hungry to be funny. I'm too hungry. I can't do it anymore. I you know what? Cue the intro. All right, so I ate some more of my pubic hair, and I am now full, and I'm Jesus ready Christ. to do the actual intro now. Okay, well, hello, everyone. That was disgusting. I'm Liz. I thought it was pretty good. I'm Brace, and we are joined by producer Young Chomsky. This is the podcast, True and On Podcast, available <laughs> on Apple, iTunes, podcast apps, also Stitcher. Why do people use different ones? I don't know. I, I just, just use, use the, the one, one that, that comes with. with. Me yeah. too. It's like when you see somebody has like, exactly, you see somebody's got like another like internet thing on their phone. It's like, what? How did you do that? Also, it's not even how did you do it? It's like, were you that bothered? What's wrong with the one that comes with? Just go with the, what? You care that much about your applications? How many podcasts are you listening? Well, I shouldn't ask that. What are you doing on your phone? What's going on there? You know what I do (laughs) is I, I... I what I do just is put I, the phone down. If someone's texting me, I go into there and I type a bunch of stuff so it looks like I'm texting them back, and then I don't send it. So they're like, "What was he gonna say?" That's people so that awful. One. Yeah, I, people love that one. <laughs> or I say, "Hold up!" You really are Dennis the Menace. If you search my phone for "hold up," there are thousands of people that I've just ended conversation with. You fucking like, said up. that to me, you asshole. 
Well, yeah, I know. I actually do. Well, because I can text for like five minutes and I have to do something now. I don't understand how text is supposed to work. Because if you're texting, you have to look at your phone the whole time. But if like, if I'm having like a conversation with someone over text, then I have to look at my phone for like 30 minutes. Yeah. Straight. Yeah. People oh, like looking at their you, phones. I just assumed you had like another way to do that. No. But. Okay. So uh, last week we talked about Palantir with Noah Colwyn and mm-hmm. If you got to the end of the episode, you realized that we had more to talk about. And so welcome. That's this episode. <laughs> we are calling this the dork enlightenment. <laughs> Apparently that, yeah, that's what we're calling it. And uh, Noah Colwyn is back to talk about uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Peter Thiel. Mm-hmm. So uh, let me do it this time. So let's just, let's just start it right here. You like that? <laughs> Yeah, let's get to it. What? What? No! No! Hold on! No! No, no! Do not cut to it! Okay, and let's roll it then. What about if we roll no. it now? No, you fucking... No, you fucking... I, I think we should get to it now. Wait, hold up. Can we pause real quick? Can we pause real quick? I actually... I, I'm sorry. I'm getting a really important phone call. Just kidding, bitch! Roll the fucking interview! So I, I'm really happy to welcome Noah here today because I, uh, several times in my life, I have signed mutual suicide packs, but those have almost exclusively been with beautiful women who I've tricked and unfortunately had to flee the country because of. Um, today, what we're doing here is we are all looking at each other on the eye, in the eyes, on the eyes, in the eyes uh, over this, over this beautiful online meetup thing. And, uh, and we're agreeing to be sued into oblivion. <laughs> So, without further ado, my name is Richard Franzak. Hey. Uh, Brace Belden was sick today. He couldn't make it, and he had no, absolutely no uh, input on what we're talking about. (laughs) I'm joined here by Lisa Loeb. Absolutely. um, And by Rob Schneider Jr. Welcome. Fine. True and on Sure. <laughs> you know what? We I have to say, because we fucked up last time, and we said that Noah was the first three-peat, and that's fucking wrong, and I feel terrible. Mm-hmm. That's terrible. I'm so sorry. Uh, Michael was, was three, and Ben, of course, has been on five times. Ooh, that's true. Yeah, well, I fucked it up, because these are three standalone ones, and those were series. But yeah, no, that's literally, I was incorrect. Also, one thing I have to add uh, uh, from, uh, from, from friend of the pod Twitter user Human, um, the, the InQtel thing that we talked about last time, Palantir CIA funder, uh, the, the gentleman in charge of that who, who helped fund Palantir had previously, I, I mentioned that he brought Tetris over from the, from the Soviet Union. What I didn't mention that is that he did that under the auspices of Robert Maxwell, Ghislaine Maxwell's father. <laughs> so, uh, it all yes. comes full what a tangled circle. Web yeah. we weave. Mm. So as you can as you can understand, we have from all the references we've made so far, we have Noah Colwyn back in the pod, and by that I mean our polypod, not the actual podcast herself. <laughs> I don't believe we're recording. Uh, we have Noah Colwyn here to talk about Peter Thiel. Mm. Yes, our good friend and ally. Because <laughs> we talked a lot about Palantir last time, which of course you can't talk about Palantir without talking about Palantir. 
But we have, uh, let's say, a little bit more of a focused gaze this time. Yeah, I mean, what's the the point of talking about Oz without mentioning the wizard, you know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, We are talking about one of the the most twink-loving men in Hollywood, Peter Thiel. Um, God damn it. Yes. (laughs) uh, Sorry, guys. It's going to be a lot of that. I mean, I think that we, you know, the reason why we wanted to talk about Teal and Palantir in particular was because Teal, I mean, at least I've said this a couple times and I stand by it, that there's like two people in tech, Silicon Valley tech, however we want to call that, that scare me. And that's Peter Teal and Jeff Bezos. And like those two people, um, I kind of like, I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I could be totally wrong. And maybe there's an interesting debate there, or maybe not, but um you know they strike me as not just like that they have that they're somewhat ideologues but there's a different sort of will to power behind them individually than maybe the other kind of um you know philosopher kings of silicon valley the zuckerbergs and the you know tim apples and you know the chan yeah what have you but um yeah they're that that there's something about these guys, and you know, we're we're not talking about Bezos, so we'll just focus on Teal in particular. That um, you know, that their project doesn't seem limited to just um, let's say like tinkering with new technology that could be fun, or just like you know having an impact on people's lives or whatever. Even Google doesn't, you know, even the guys at Google don't strike me as. Um, let's say, as interested in world-making as maybe someone like Peter Thiel. Yeah, I I think that that's a really good way to put it. Um, And I I think that Thiel is also, you know, he's, you know, there are other tech billionaires who are willing to throw their weight around politically, like, you know, Mark Benioff, Mm. um, Mm. you know, I mean, and even the Future mayor of San Francisco, or one of his his associates. I've been paid $25 an hour to phone bank in the Salesforce office, and it was... It was good money. It was more than I was making a regular work. <laughs> um, so, like you know, somebody like Benioff, and then even the apol- the so you know the so called apolitical tech billionaires like you know Mark Zuckerberg, um, you know they're just as political and 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 have just as much you know are interested in putting their thumb on the scale. Peter Thiel is like an activist political billionaire mm-hmm. in a really interesting way, and he's an activist in you know how he acts as a businessman. He's an activist in how he approaches you know where his personal political dollars go. And and I think that like he he is an ideologue. His ideology is pretty nebulous, and and it's mm-hmm. hard to pin down. And that's how he wants it. But I think that it's absolutely worthwhile, kind of trying to unpack a little bit, you know, some of the the mystery surrounding the man. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be uh, fair to to discuss one of the great apes of the jungle without discussing the jungle itself. So where Teal is from, Teal is like 90 fucking percent of my enemies. And by the way, I know we have listeners in Germany. This is not about you or, your, well, maybe some of your family members, depending on how long, far back we're going. But he is of German descent. Uh, his father is a chemist from Germany, which is one of the most, uh, just racially, I don't feel good hearing those words uh, put together. <laughs> Uh, and, and, uh, so I'm sure he, he was, he, he, he left Germany, his father left Germany, went to South Africa. So, mm-hmm. you know, as yeah. out of, uh, to devotion to principles of social justice, uh, in this apartheid era, South Africa, and then, uh, then settled uh, here in America where, where baby Teal, uh, was, was brought up, but he wasn't born. I believe he was born in Frankfurt. 
Um, after that, Teal, Teal, not super familiar with his early life, don't really give a fuck, but a very important thing to note is that he went to Stanford. And like everybody who went to college never stops talking about it. Uh, <laughs> he, he's, he's, you know how you see like a, like a, well, actually, the first person that comes to mind is Jeffrey Epstein, but he didn't actually go to Harvard. But, you know, you see like a 50-year-old wearing like a sweatshirt that says like NYU or something, and you're like, come on, man. You went there. It's, why are we thinking about that? I don't think about my middle school. I think the uh, rule is that like after age 25, if you own college apparel and you're not presently enrolled there, then like, you know, like that, not cool. Lame. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're a pedophile. And, uh, and... Actually, cut that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Actually, you know what? Keep it in. Keep it in. No, you are a pedophile. Yeah, except for Peter Thiel. Um, But but Peter Thiel is one of those guys who is very much into the politics and the teachings of his alma mater, which would be Stanford. Uh, He he went there and has continued to be an activist voiced on campus. Well, and he also taught a class there that's and has taught a course there called Zero to One that I mentioned, um, you know, it was also the name of his book in the in the Palantir episode, the thesis of which is about how like every sane business, every good smart startup aspires to be a monopoly and so on. And I think that he uh, like, you know, like th- that, that's sort of as much as you need to know about like the pet, some of the pedagogy uh, that he, that's going on there. There's not too much more to it that I think a thinking person should really have to care about. In this guy's case, it's the pedagogy of the repressed. <laughs> that is really good. That's really good, man. I got to give it to you. I also want to say that, like, um, you know, Harvard and Yale get rightly get a lot of attention for the people that come out of there and where they end up in you know, I don't know, in media and academia and, of course, in the government. But, like, Stanford deserves just as much. Like, Mm -hmm. we don't talk about Stanford in the same way that we talk about Harvard and Yale. Or, like, it doesn't get thrown around in that because, for whatever reason, it's on the West Coast, maybe. But, like... I think that's literally why. Like, Stanford Business School is... (laughs) I mean, talk about, like, some of the worst of the worst. Like, all of McKinsey, like, comes out of Stanford Business. Like, Mm -hmm. some of the, like... uh, I mean, it's just a training ground for, uh, I think, the most, like, rapacious, repugnant fucking, like, vultures of private equity. And it's, you know, every industry associated. I mean, there's... And and it's a very... um I think it's like it's like it's so closely tied into like the fabric of like Silicon Valley as an industry, mm. like the origin stories of almost every ma- basically all of the major like software companies, except for accepting Microsoft um, is wrapped up in, in stand and to some extent Microsoft even. But like, I do think I guess like one of the things to say about Stanford and, and I say this um, like, you know, having like spent pleasant time on the campus and everything is also that it's like it, it allows the people who are like in its orbit and allows those software freaks to like pretend like they are in college as they're doing it. Like they never have to leave that world. It's very much like a self-contained atmosphere. Mm. I think but that I think it's good to like kind of compare it in that way to like Yale and Harvard Law, which are just like basically training grounds right up into either the big law firms or like very important government positions. Like it, it's like a feeding tube into these institutions in the same way that Silicon Valley is becoming more and more like, a, you know, an institution in its own right. 
Well, I, I think a lot of people tend to think of like colleges as like not neutral, but like, you know, a place you go to learn when they actually are very clearly, especially like these sort of places are, are, are training grounds for like the future administrators and the future rulers of the world. Like yeah. they are sort of in, in, in their essence, uh, enemy territory. Yes. And that's not just because I went to City College. We take the Pol Pot it's, view of of the academy here on Truanon. But, but not of guys, but not of guys who wear glasses, but not of guys who wear glasses. I mean, Actually, even if, even if I was medals. inclined to like disagree with you about that, like you just can't deny that that's what Stanford especially <laughs> exactly. is more than any like it's the most like that of any university possibly. I mean, it's it's like um they have Tobias Wolf. They have that going for them. Mm. They also have the Hoover Institution. Oh, and Condi Rice runs the Hoover Institution. Great lady. Mm. Condi Rice, who also, as, as we'll get to shortly, uh, was forced to disavow Peter Thiel uh, because he said rape is fake. <laughs> well, let's get into that. Tell us more about his life at Stanford. Well, yeah, and in, in the, in the crew he was running with, the set that he ran with, so to speak. Well, you're probably a little more familiar with this than I am, but, but as you get, you know, all these motherfuckers, Silicon Valley dickheads, have their origin stories like, oh, I met, you know, Bozo Clark while we were, you know, walking the halls of the CompuSci bullshit. So he comes into that set, like he first encounters the people that um, will, he first encountered, like Teal first encountered at Stanford and then Stanford Law, like a lot of the the people that, you know, he would like in the orbit um, that he would probably encounter and, and be close to for the rest of his life, including people that he would go on to work with at PayPal. Um, but he, he, he had like a, he's like a little bit un- unconventional in that he went to work on Wall Street and for a white shoe law firm mm-hmm. um, before he ended up coming back to the Valley. Um, yeah. And yeah. And if you want to like, you know, like his, his early years, he, he, he basically, he and Elon Musk merged their own startups to create what is now what, what became PayPal. And that's mm-hmm. how they made like their first money. And, Teal, like, you know, in those early years, like, you know, he he was just a successful entrepreneur. It was his investment in Facebook that sort of Mm -hmm. elevated him in like, you know, to the to the billionaires club in a big way. Um, But I absolutely think like, you know, that those early years, like when he was at Stanford and so on, like that is where like the intellectual ferment happens that, um, you know, that we're describing. Yeah, I, I do know that he took like certain right wing philosophers classes. I can't remember their fucking names, but I don't care anyways. And and sort of gained a lot of his worldview from that as well. I know, of course, I didn't mention this earlier, but when he was very young, he read uh, he read a lot of Ayn Rand, which generally not a good sign for someone growing up to be somebody that I don't want to put in prison. Um, and and that like that seems to have shaped a lot of his experiences, and then or at least a lot of his worldview, and then that worldview was further shaped. By becoming this like successful entrepreneur, and he also had like you know he like read like Rene Girard, I believe, and and had yeah. like this he cultivated like you know the, like to the he cultivated like a, a sense and and viewed himself and views himself and viewed himself then as like somebody carrying out like the tradition of like you know rad- I think like radical conservative thought, and he, and he carried it out in rather uh, extreme ways <laughs> even then. Well, after after he left Stanford, he does the thing that that really upstanding cool guys do. Although actually, he might have started it while he was at Stanford, but something called the Stanford Review. So listeners might be familiar with the Dartmouth Review, which is infamous for uh, Dinesh D'Souza's uh, Gay Watch columns, where he would just out <laughs> students for being gay. Uh, Laura Ingraham, who uh, 
I I just I there's a lot of history there with me and her, but I uh, Laura Ingraham also wrote for that, and of course the National Review, which is like the, the Dartmouth Review, but for fatter people uh, who uh, Trotskyoid types. <laughs> Stanford Review was like a less incendiary version of that, although still fairly incendiary, and 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 it was part of like a network. Like there's a whole network of um, I think actually Jane Mayer talks about these in Dark Money, but basically like conservative donors have for ye- mm. for years propped up newspapers and conservative student publications. You know, sort of an outgrowth of like earlier efforts like Young Americans for Freedom, which uh, like were active in like the 60s and 70s, um, right. and 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 like the you know like the these like intellectual publications like Peter Thiel comes into the standard review. He co-founds it and it's part of a long lineage of like shit stirring racist, big racists and bigots and so on um, for to like, you know, like, like develop like their craft or whatever hone their craft uh, in college. So are extremely old and, but still wise and dignified listeners might remember in the late eighties, early nineties is sort of when like the first kind of big PC wave and and Stanford was not immune from that. Uh, Teal and in his Stanford review are are very much not happy with that, and and it turns into years later. I think in the mid nineties, ninety six. Uh, Peter Teal and and uh, one of his buddies, whose last name is Sachs, but whose first name I can't remember. Um, David. David Sachs. Uh, write a book called the Diversity Myth, and you might be wondering, like, well. Maybe they're talking about diversity of thought. They don't like that. Turns out they're talking about diversity of everything else except for thought. The thing is, <laughs> they thought there's like, well, you got all these. I, I think they have, they have, there's one line from the book where they're like, people, you know, the left thinks diversity looks like a, a bunch of people from the Star Wars cantina hanging out, which tells you the kind of fucking caliber of people we're dealing with here. Uh, but what it actually looks like is when you, uh, you let me have my opinions. And, of course, his opinions are being funded by, I'm sure, whatever fucking dark money sources are funding Stanford Review at this time. But uh, but he he that book later comes to really bite him in the ass. Uh, he's forced to apologize for a bunch of different sections in it. And, and I believe they dedicate the book, although I might be wrong about this, and it's certainly in the book, to a student who was kicked out of Stanford for standing outside a gay professor's house and yelling, Die, faggot, die, faggot, I hope you die of AIDS. And because he was kicked out, that showed that the professor, or excuse me, that Stanford was sort of saying that gay people are more likely to get AIDS, and so it's not a preferable lifestyle to hold. And I mean, so there's the that like incident that you just described, the like, can't wait until you die, faggot. Yes. Um, the like one person who is like, like, I know that there's some dispute over whether or not he was the person who said it, but um, the like. One of the a law student who was like among the like like among those who were who were there like shouting it uh, was Keith Rebois, who is like part of like the Teal PayPal mafia and has gone on to become like you know he's like still remains like a uh, big tech tech impresario and also like Teal has uh, since come out of the closet. Yeah, and and it's funny too. The Stanford Review I've heard from some of my sources uh, is uh, has always been run by a gay libertarian. Like a hundred percent. It's one of those like we're probably going to talk a lot about in this episode about like Teal's kind of network that he has, especially in in terms of Stanford and in the technology. But just even at the Stanford Review, everybody who's run it has essentially been, um, let's say, under Teal's wing and of the same sort of like same mold essentially, which is a gay 
libertarian. <laughs> I want to say too that like I just was looking at um the diversity myth like the blurb on Amazon and it's so funny how we are still fucking having this conversation. Like this reads like something that you would read in like the fucking Atlantic like now. Well, it's I mean you say that it's but it's like insane. The, the when like we book, haven't left this fucking conversation. When that book came out, you know, think about it like the bell curve is still basically yeah, yeah, freshly yeah. published in the New Republic. Like I think that there is like Teal is like a lot of this stuff. I mean, it was extreme for the time, but it's again, like it's important, I think, to keep connecting it to just like it's part of like the same old like, you know, like meet like like uh, I mean, it, like conservative intellectual machine that is like reliably yeah, like tried to like disguise itself at different points in, you know, as something other than what it like straightforwardly is. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I mean, you see it, like, in the fabric, like, today in these conversations, like, saying, like, you know, the debilitating impact that politically correct multiculturalism has on education and academic freedom. I mean, that's literally, like, an op-ed in the New York Times, like, right now. Yeah. You know? A hundred percent. And it's, like, it's, 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 you know, there's, there's a lot of arguments about, like, what I think would be now called rape culture in the book, um, Teal Teal at one point writes, since a multicultural rape charge, which I don't know what what that means, uh, may indicate nothing. What's a multicultural rape charge? Might in, may indicate nothing more than belated regret. A woman might quote realize that she had been raped the next day or even many days later. Under these circumstances, it is unclear who should be held responsible. If the alcohol made both of them do it. Then why should the woman's consent be obviated any more than the man's? Why is all blame placed on the man? This was a big. This was like a big sort of bugbear for for Teal at the time. Uh, at one point, I think he's like, "How could a woman be raped if she doesn't have physical marks from it? Like that's you know that's ridiculous. You know, there's no that means and, there's and, no force and, you know, or whatever." That was written in the nineties in two thousand nine on the blog of the think tank Cato. He like wrote that basically he believed that like since women got the right to vote, uh, it's generally been kind of a net negative. Um, yeah, if you really think about it, and so he like, I, and yeah, I don't bring that up just. To, I, I don't I, like I, like I only bring that up to say that like you know he will try to say well that was like you know twenty five years ago. Are you really going to make such a fuss about it? And it's yeah. like well ten years ago you said something <laughs> that like was fairly in line with that. So I don't know, Mister. Well, and that's like still like uh, I mean that's a repeated line in like neo reactionary stuff now, like yeah, which I oh, think yeah, we're going to get into. But like yeah. that is one of the points of contention that like women in the workplace and they tie that to also women voting has been a net negative on society as a whole for a whole bunch of reasons, you know? Yeah. So Teal's influence at Stanford isn't only felt in the Stanford Review, which I'm sure, by the way, is very widely read. Uh, <laughs> He's also he is he is a he is a bigwig in in the Stanford CompuSci program, um, and and in fact, like from what I hear, he has essentially full control over it. The, I guess the way it works is that there's these big sort of introductory classes for new students who join, thousands of people that are sort of overseen by by a couple like ministers essentially, uh, who are also chosen from I believe older students. And the two people who are always in charge of it, like the students in charge of thousands of other students, 2,000 every quarter, uh, are always run by Teal people. 
And these are people who either intern at Palantir or, or you know, one of his friends' companies over the summer or who actually, like, work already part-time at Palantir. Uh, and, and there's something called, like, the CS fraternity there, which is essentially, like, uh, Teal... It, it's, it's a way for Teal and Palantir to exercise control over this program. I mean, in the Stanford CompuSci program, I, I mean... It's fucking Stanford. It's fucking computer science. Like, you know, it's it's pretty prestigious to get to. But at one point, like other rec- recruiters from other big companies like Microsoft, Google, and whatever, weren't even really trying to recruit from there because Teal had such an incredible lock on it. And that's like, that's just a sort of another, uh, he, he, it's the way that Teal operates. And it's the same way he sort of like, you know, his recent reporting has shown that he, he really got that Palantir like ingratiated with, with the military is he doesn't actually necessarily start from the top. He starts from mid-level people and, mm-hmm. and has, have them work down, um, which, you know, I guess it's also starting from the top, but I mean, not the very top, uh, yeah. ha- has them both work down and up. And, and it's it's this sort of like way that Teal organizes things that's like, it's fairly insidious, but like it, it works pretty well. Um, and so he also hosts StarCraft tournaments at the uh, Palantir office. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> I don't know what that is. What is that? It's like, it's a very good Starcraft, computer game. It's like Warcraft in space. It's, you know, Warcraft, What's, Liz? No, what is that? It's is that um, a video game? Are you familiar with orcs? Your command master. <laughs> no, you know, I don't know what an orc is. It's like a very, it's. It, it's it is legit. I mean, like I'm I'm being totally sincere when I say that it's like an incredibly entertaining competitive video game to watch, and people who are really good at it are really really smart. That's that's it's all. It's like I a can Korean say. thing, right? Yeah, I mean, it's huge there. I mean, it's faded a bit just because like it's not as popular of a game anymore. But like, I went to there was like a kid in my orientation group at college, and he was like a professional StarCraft player player, Whoa. and now he's like I think a, I think he's like a neurologist. Like he like. He's really good. He's like really smart. Yeah. I was always like, yeah, I played it when I was in middle school, but I was not very good at it. Not like competitively, like against the, against the, Oh, I'm like, I'm so bad. Um, but Teal, he's always looking for the best. And so like Palantir, uh, like has this lock over the CompuSci program at Stanford and, and can really pick and choose between who is going to be like who they want to work at Palantir, the most talented people. However, unless you are Asian, because they did have to pay a $1.7 million uh, lawsuit over accusations in 2017 that they were uh, purposely not hiring or even interviewing Asian people. Sounds like diversity isn't really a myth. Exactly. Look at that. Look um, at that. He also was found to be hiring orcs. Work complete. Which is, which is really sort of like, they were, he was bringing them on H-1B visas over here from the <laughs> Warcraft realm. From the world of Warcraft. That was stupid. My joke was better. <laughs> yeah, true. Okay, I'll take that. Yes, that's correct. Um, but yeah, I, I mean that 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 sort of like it, it's it's just indicative of the way that Teal works, and he has his claws and like a lot more stuff than people might know about. I also do have it on good authority, very good authority that Peel uh, Peel, excuse me, Peter Teal held the um, the son of a very prominent Baltic politician very prominent uh in in something like a well i'm not going to say sexual thrall i would never say that but uh, when this guy was going to stanford certainly had a at a at a a very paternalistic relationship to this uh to this young uh young baltic man uh who who is uh 
since gone back and started a political career of his own. So who knows what Teal's doing, you know, <laughs> what other, you know, pies he's got his little fingers in. So I think like one one sort of thing that's kind of important to understand Peter Thiel is that like, you know, a lot of people try to affect the world and billionaires in particular, they try and change the world by changing political parties, by mm-hmm. changing corporations, by mm-hmm. changing, you know, large NGOs or even directly influencing governments. And in America, like traditionally billionaires have been, you know, like like the the wealthy are pretty content, I think, to to kind of work through conventional political channels. Mm. It's the it's the structure of our society. And that's how they're able to make the change they want. What Peter Thiel, I think, was able to do with the destruction of Gawker was, you know, achieved through like like, you know, a really impressive kind of like will to destroy that makes him fairly unusual. And that he's willing to show it so that he was willing to show his hand so brazenly, because yes. ultimately, even though he kept it secret, he did was very, very happy to take credit for it when the time came. And the origin of the story, like I think, you know, to, to make it clear, it was that Gawker wrote a story, the blogger Owen Thomas, who later went on to be the business editor of the SF Chronicle, a job he may still hold. Nice guy, has a like, cute little white dog. Maybe, I hope I hope the dog hasn't died since named Ramona. Well, if he works who, at the SF Chronicle, I'll probably end up suing him at some point. Yeah, well, uh, you know, used to see him at Martoonies. Uh, Great part. Uh, and, um, and Owen wrote a post that was like, um, hello, Peter Thiel is gay, people. And Owen is himself gay. And it wasn't like outing Peter Thiel. It wasn't. Peter Thiel was known as like an out gay man to quite like anybody in the Bay Area. It was like not like like an it was open not, secret exactly like it's really to say that it was something that was his private life and shouldn't have been referred to like by like a newspaper is or or a blog like is is crazy but supposedly peter Thiel believed himself to be wounded he had tries you know to engage with the valley with valley wag this was gawker's silicon valley blog and and blah 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 and so he bides his time. But ultimately, an associate of his comes up with this idea, which is basically, listen, like Gawker has insurance that helps them pay lawsuits when they get you know sued by, by some guy. Um, what if we just find as many people as possible who have credible, you know, like suits or credible cases at the very seem like it? We go to a state where there's no slap anti slap protections, you know, meaning that there are no laws preventing people from filing frivolous lawsuits, and let's just sue the shit out of Gawker, and hopefully something will strike. And that something was Hulk Hogan's case. We based our love on the three demandments of the training, the prayers, and the vitamins. But you threw it all away, man. Now, I'm not really going to get into the particulars of publishing the Hulk Hogan sex tape. I will. Okay, go for it, homeboy. No, no, oh no, no! The, like the moral ethics of it. I mean, I just don't no. Care, I, I mean, I, I like if you want to give the pay by play, you seem to oh, know it no. so well. Well, Hulk, I've jerked off to the video. Hulk Hogan is on a video <laughs> fucking the wife of his friend Bubba the Love Sponge right in the pussy. Fucks her. It's insane. Who, by the way, he, was part of like a wife swapping circle with dun, 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 David Petraeus. Um, that really? yeah it was referenced Pardon in like me? a court fi- yeah it, google petraeus bubba the love Sponge. it comes up even in in, in uh you know what's like, funny is i have googled that and nothing i didn't see anything wait really no why would i have googled that was <laughs> no no i'm like um, i'm not making this up like come on believe me i've uh, jerked no. off to a video of david petraeus <laughs> just going hog on bubba the love sponge's wife's uh clitoris it's just that's it's mrs this- love sponge uh, excuse me yeah i'm sorry 
Um, uh, but but let I me tell you, like longer. a real sponge, a lot of liquid going around there. Okay. <laughs> yeah, absorbent. Um, anyway, uh, so like the Hulk Hogan sex tape, Gawker publishes the Hulk Hogan sex tape. Uh, it is like, like, let's be clear, under any single, like laws are fake. Jurisprudence is bullshit. I don't I'm respect any of this. it. It's it doesn't matter on a moral principle, on a moral level. A law does not tell you anything. So like, just clear, get that up front. That said, the legal precedent was fairly clear after like 200 fucking years of the First Amendment or whatever. And neither the Hulk Hogan case nor like Peter Thiel being like told, like said that he like discussed as as a homosexual uh, were things that should have been like the grounds for anything legal, how uh, any sort of like like justified legal action. Yeah, However. Yeah. Uh, they struck lucky with Hulk Hogan for a few reasons, um, some like legal reasons, and then also because the trial judge that they got was literally the attorney for Terry Schiavo's parents, who was given her judgeship as a reward by Governor Jeb Bush, and is mm. like, a, like a like just like a dumb lady, like really stupid. Um, mm-hmm. If you ever watch the, the kind videos of person of be this. like, oh Hulk, and and the coverage of the trial was bullshit. The New York Times wrote a story like they like they 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 took out of quote like they misquoted uh, like there was like a. You know, a, a Gawker editor, AJ Delario, you know, said like sarcastically in the middle of like a four hour deposition, like, is there any sex tape of an age that you have somebody you wouldn't publish? And he said four year old. And that was taken like he it was yeah, clearly said sarcastically. Yeah, and the New York Times printed it with the opposite meaning. Like, you know, say whether or not you think it's wise legal strategy. Obviously, it was fucking stupid. It was like a real like like it was it was sensationalized in the wrong way. And so Hulk Hogan wins. Gawker is not allowed to appeal. They are literally required to come up with the, uh, I think, 40... Yeah, 40, $46 million is what I think it was ultimately they had to pay up front in compens- compensatory and punitive damages. Um, and they had to pay it up front and they were not allowed to appeal. And so, like, it was not Wait, because... why couldn't they appeal? Because the ju- a judge has to allow you. They have to... Because in, order to, in yeah. order to formally appeal, they would have had to pay the judgment. Like, they, they would have had to... Like, they, they, they were, like, literally prevented. Um, Tom oh. Skoka, in his piece that's on the Gawker website, it's one of the last one, like, he describes the moments of it, but it's like... Gawker was not like they didn't have the you know they didn't have the money and that's not like anybody was going to loan it to them so um and and you know had they been able to pursue it like they probably would have won it on they almost surely would have won it on appeal but it like like you know it was really just about the fact that like they could not summon the amount of money necessary because the size of the judgment was so big and so Peter Thiel as like a rich guy through force of will and luck and through using like a venture capital strategy because the logic of how a venture capitalist makes money is that they invest in like 50 million mm-hmm. different companies and only one of them has to get real has to make make it really huge big that's right. why then- that's why it's called seed funding because you know a lot of so let me tell you guys oh, about that damn it no race. the belden plan i'm telling you you have no, as many I'm, kids as possible do you we already know where this. you're going with screaming jay hawkins did this as well you have as many kids as possible you watch the news for their name coming up. If it's coming up in a balloon boy type context, you do not contact. If it's coming up in a Peter Thiel context, you do contact because your son is rich now and you can be like, oh, I was actually kidnapped and couldn't contact you. <laughs> God That's, damn it. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is called <laughs> the Belden arrangement. I've done this. I've been doing this since I was 16. I've been yeah. doing this. So I've been doing this. 
So that's how Peter Thiel does the Gawker case. Like he he funded like he funded a bunch of bullshit suits against Gawker. Like Fran yeah. Drescher's former life partner, right. Shiva I remember that. Like, like 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 stuff that had no merit. And eventually the Hogan thing went out. And like Hulk Hogan yeah. is a piece of shit. And the reason that he sued Gawker in the first place was because Gawker published like the the revelation of the Hogan sex tapes basically read to the revelation of Hulk Hogan like screaming the N word repeatedly. That um, was the big deal, and that was why he sued them. Was because like he. He lost his affiliation with WWE. Like his his professional prospects were pretty fucked at that at that point. It was a low point for the for the Hulkster. So I think that like you know the, the Peter Thiel like uh, Ryan Holiday wrote a book called Conspiracy. It's a really bad book, but that's like the book to read if you want like the Thiel side of it, in which mm. it's like you know like like what is it like Ryan Holiday poses like fatuously like what is a conspiracy and and and, and that's like really how Thiel like they cultivated this as like yeah. you know. I could not like I believed Gawker was a negative influence in the world because I'm a small-brained person who believes that tabloids are like the the are, are like the the root of all evil I guess uh, because they called me wait, gay or something like the, even the grievance is still informed <laughs> Did but they? whatever and you got owned oh yeah. no oh sorry you're being teal in this yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no Gawker never called me gay I don't I don't think I don't anyway that's actually um, why they shut down uh, that <laughs> other website they put up <laughs> oh. <laughs> and so like the like he he views it though as like he was able to like influence the world and change it and make it better through just like yeah. spending a lot of fucking money doing this. And by the way, the practice of funding covertly funding lawsuits um to like for the purpose of like assaulting your enemies, it's called champerty and it's outlawed in many countries. Sorry, what's it called? Champerty. C H A M P E R T Y. Great word. Okay. Cool. That's uh, For the script spelling bees heads out there. That's good to know. Bye-bye. Yes. Liz. So I want to like pause on something and just kind of like, cause you, I mean, you, you said this, but I, I really want to drive it home is because I think this is a, the key to understanding why Teal is different ideologically in the way mm-hmm. that he exerts power um, is that, you know, there were so many ways that he could have done this. There were so many ways that he could have tried to like from behind the scenes, like soft power, nudge things, either through money, through donors, through, influence through whatever i mean gawker's owner nick denton was like a wealthy gay guy like you know like they they, they were like the same set they had a lot to talk about right so like yeah he chose not to go that way yeah absolutely and like pretty much everyone else does go that way right like that is the playbook that's how things are done and for him to kind of like say no actually i'm gonna not just like uh you know go this like insane route to shut it down like that will be, you know, blockbuster lawsuit or whatever, but is actually like creating a precedent for future things as well, right? Absolutely. And so like that, I mean, I think that's like a key part, which is that like this lawsuit then creates a legal precedent in case any of this were to come up in any kind of remote way again. And suddenly now society has changed just a tiny bit, right? Well, and and I think even in just like you know, like a re- like a definitely a way I would illustrate that is that it relates to this whole fucking argument we're having about the Supreme Court right now, which is that like part of what Peter Thiel did was that he looked at jurisprudence and he said judges are political actors and nobody treats them like that, and the way that you influence a political actor is you throw a lot of money at it. And I'm going to find a creative way, or I have this person. He has like literally it was a guy who came up to him who who like like an associate of his who like had this whole scheme, and it's like. Like this guy has a cre- 
creative strategy for how to do this in a way that nobody's done before. And so like you're totally right Liz. Like like it's he cre- he developed like a blueprint in a really kind of creative way. And like I don't want to you know I don't, I don't want to like get hung up on saying like and so wow he's such like an evil deliberate genius, but it is to just you know to affirm what Liz is saying is that it's like it's a, it's what makes him like you know stand out a bit from like a frankly pretty pallid cast of like you know boring you know fucking boring you know ass billionaires yeah. and people. Absolutely. I mean, I think what you just said is really important and maybe kind of gets us um, into like where I think we should go next, which is really getting into the like meat and potatoes of his philosophy and kind of intellectual outlook. Like what you said about him saying that judicial actors, that it's all about power, right? Like that really informs his worldview and the kind of like um, milieu that I guess he we can say that he, he sort of tangentially belongs to. It's this idea that... Um, everything is reducible to, and you know, maybe there, you know, in in a lot of ways, this is correct, right? That every that 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 politics is reducible to struggle for power and who has power, and the way you know, whatever you do, whatever choices you make as an actor to influence politics has to take that into account, like you say, like uh, paying the judge or whatever, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that that's like he, you know, like. I guess to sort of, there's this New Yorker piece from 2011 by George Packer. And the opening of it is, I think, really, um, it's 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 like the rest of the piece you can kind of you know give or take because it's pretty dated. Um, but basically, like it opens with Peter Thiel saying, like you know, he pulls an iPhone and says, "I don't consider this to be a technological break- breakthrough. Compare this with the Apollo space program." And it's because, like, you know, he sees, he looks back and he thinks about, like, the way power gets wielded in the world now and, like, mm-hmm. where, technological, te- where technological power is and, like, where wealth is. And he sees that, like, people have been wielding power badly, that, like, we actually, we, why do we have iPhones? Literally, like, why don't we have flying cars? And he believes, like, like, because that's, inser- that's his ultimate, like, you know, that's part of his vision. At the Founders Fund, uh, his his venture capital firm, there's like a, a quote that gets passed around a lot that you sort of in a lot of their marketing material and is associated with them that it's, you know, like we were promised flying cars and we got like Facebook followers yeah. or something. That, that they, they, they love saying that kind of shit. Yeah. And, and to me, it's sort of like, that is sort of like, uh, that's like the, that justification, this idea of investing in like a technological future that is going to be so rich that like, we just need to get like a strong, we need to get like strong men and strong, powerful people with a vision of it to take us there. And I think that that really kind of sheds a lot of light about, you know, like, like it, it explains how he approaches a lot of this stuff. And it also explains, I think, what makes him so popular among his set. Because mm. if you're Mark Zuckerberg and this guy's investing in, you know, like that's a, like, like, I mean, it's in a certain way, you know, it sort of makes a lot of sense why Mark Zuckerberg thinks that he gets, he gets to run the world because the investor who, you know, probably single most made his reputation is a guy who believes that people like him are basically Jesus. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's totally true. I think what's interesting about it is like, I mean, all these guys, you know, I I mean, we can kind of say that Teal sort of belongs to, you know, he's a libertarian or, you know, like we said, he kind of like grew into libertarianism and then has now kind of moved. 
in like an offshoot of what we could say libertarian libertarianism yeah. and libertarians are changing and um uh, you know the kind of like neo reactionary movement that has um that kind of like started on the internet and, and elsewhere like i don't know what would you say like 2006 2007 kind of started um that kind of like marries libertarianism and authoritarianism in like a very kind of weird way. Well, I think that they also have um, like a bunch of it comes out of like England and there's some specific figures like Nick Land. Um, sure. Who I think like sort of get like, like, like get folded into all this. Um, I'm and making I, and- the jacking off motion right now. <laughs> like in a dismissive way. Yeah, 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 I mean the one thing I do think about like uh, some of the origins of the libertarian stuff is that there is also like a kind of like southern sort of um, like like uh, like a lot of the like a lot of what Teal says and a lot of the people like the sort of like white supremacist people that he would meet with and link up with in like 2018 come from like a version of that libertarian school in the South that's like you know like like a lot of which is just rooted in wanting to recreate like a sleep, like a, like, you know, like planter society. And so yeah. I think that there are, there is like a lot of, you know, there, it should be pointed out that there's some like interesting uh, synergies as he might say. Mm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I mean, that, that's always sort of been like the irony about a lot of libertarians is that, is that, you know, they, they profess this, you know, goal of Liberty. And for many people, or, or so they say that means like very limited government or no government at all. And then you sort of like get to see how that has throughout the years really just been, I, I mean, ignored it essentially every opportunity by the major players in this. I mean, they've, 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 you know, supported people like Pinochet, um, you know, a lot of them flirt or, or at least, or even full fledged fledged members of, you know, these, these far right groups, which certainly, you know, their plans call for well, quite a lot of government intervention to quite a lot of people's lives and and I I think that like that Teal is really indicative of that. Like a lot of people call Teal like a Nazi or they call him a libertarian, and neither of those things are true. Like he is this sort of like new breed of like futurist like post libertarians. Liz, um, how do you how do you see him like like how do you see him like how do you think Teal thinks about power? Well, I think there's a couple things. So I think that like. Um, there's a really interesting quote from him in that same piece that you mentioned where he says that like <laughs> women voting was a mistake or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And this is from 2009. So this is before, like I said, the kind of NRX stuff starts going on the internet. Or this is like right at the time when that's happening. But before Teal links up with someone who I think we need to talk about, which is Curtis Yarvin or Mencha Smallbug. Um and he's, he writes in this piece, I believe that politics is way too intense. That's why I'm a libertarian. Politics gets people angry, destroys relationships, and polarizes people's vision. The world is us versus them, good people versus the other. Politics is about interfering with other people's lives without their consent. Uh, thus, I advocate focusing energy elsewhere onto peaceful projects that some consider utopian. So I think that like there's, there's a couple... Um, like strands of thought here that are like we said making strange bedfellows and like mm-hmm. merging into this kind of new um not totally i think uh fully articulated vision yeah but it's this idea of politics without politics which is very much of our time right this idea that um politics what what you call politics has infected every area of life and that has been overwhelming and really bad 
in general for society. Someone like Tucker Carlson echoes this a lot on his show when he talks about polarization and his fears of coming you know, civil war and all of that stuff. That's what kind of undergirds a lot of his thinking. I mean, you know, well, I think that's true. But um, so there's that. And that kind of mirrors a lot of what you would see in the kind of like German technocratic movement, right? Which is like that you can have um, perfect seamless management of society that becomes apolitical, right? That is completely apolitical because it's just kind of a management philosophy. And so there's part of that. And then there's another part of Teal that is like you mentioned with the flying cars, that is like, um, that's the libertarian like pleasure, like I just want to like feed the id, like let's go, what we I want flying cars, never, never land, we're going to have whatever we want. This is what really informs a lot of um, like, utopian silicon valley culture and particularly in san francisco where it's like you know every office has like um like play pens for fucking adults and there's this like childlike quality i think that um, that is like the piece of him that is like the you know it's the most banal thing about him like it's and it's the least like hard-edged but i think that's the thing about him that is like really gotten him it's it's what has allowed him to draw so much water like it's mm. what it's what other you know like tech people see and and are like you know so jazzed about and you know he's he's a collaborator in a lot of ways with elon musk um who is uh you know in in spacex which is funded by in part by teal and musk and and teal go back all the way to paypal and i think that they sort of you know you can look at musk as as you know uh similar like uh similarly in this way where it's just like you know they're they're so interested in pushing forward like this like you know very hardware centric hardware centric like future vision that it like other people like they they really i mean uh, like uh, you guys live in San Francisco, uh, yeah. and, and so you know it. Like people get fucking hard ons for that in a really like bad and disarming way. Mm. Well, I I think a lot of them have this have this vision uh, that the, or, or rather that they understand that technology is changing very rapidly, or at least it's it's well I think they would call it advanced, and I would disagree with them. Uh, but it you know it's va- it's advancing us towards this sort of future where you know social relations will be different. Um, Maybe the economy will need to be structured differently. Uh, it's this sort of technocratic vision of the future, and you see a lot of these, like a lot of these, like founders and VCs and tech guys. I, I, I mean, every time there's an election cycle here in San Francisco, some like absolutely depraved, like forty-two year old will be like, "Why don't we run the city like a dictatorship and have me in charge or something like that?" Like it's it's. Do you it's remember the like SF that all the city time. ads? No, what was that? It was those like it was this initiative that Jack Dorsey launched in San Francisco like a decade ago, and it had a bunch of it featured a bunch of like famous like tech executives in it, and it yeah. was like, what if you had an app that could do this? Oh, and then the, and it yes. was like and it was like this whole initiative that they wanted to do to like weave Silicon Valley stuff into like you know prove that we could make like a smarter, cooler city, which is you know I, I like mean, that's like a big part of what they say, yeah, yeah, and it's like hysterical because like American infrastructure is crumbling and shitty, and you go literally anywhere else in the fucking world and it's like oh wow they can't have like a train that runs and and and, and get well going. yeah but also i mean it's important to note that like the tech companies have their hands in like all infrastructure projects in the bay area i mean like facebook was like working on a fucking commuter tunnel from like god knows where i can't even remember how fucking far north it went like sacramento to facebook hq 
before what? all of this shit happened. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it was, no, they're it's they're basically rebuilding. I mean, it's, they're rebuilding San Francisco. Absolutely. Oh I mean, no, no, a hundred percent. But yeah. like, but what I, what I'm saying is that like a lot of these guys have these visions of the future that are like are, are are pretty ill thought out or thought out in terms of like how can we make you know American capitalism better for Facebook or better for whatever. Whereas I think Teal sort of departs from that and and and, and has like what Liz was saying is like this will to power. For himself to actually have a lot of power, and yeah. and, and, and I think that like especially with his flirt, well, like, it's more than flirtations, but like his associations with 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 Moldbug is he's actually really looking for that for the answer to that for like what things will be like. And this is where I think we can mention some of the like you know like stranger, more esoteric teal things like the fucking like the blood shit. Like yes. where it's like because Which, ultimately, by the way, it doesn't work. Yeah, no, of course, but it's the like you know the stories that uh, was rep- it has been reported that Peter Thiel is invested in and is very interested in and has had performed procedures where he is injected with the blood of younger people because mm-hmm. the like thinking I, I guess the logic is that it, it makes you live longer. Total bullshit. Um, but the the as in that 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 science is bullshit. Not that that story is bullshit. That story is very true. Um, and and you can take it to the bank on that. But uh, <laughs> but I, I think one of the things with him is that it's like he believes that he needs like you need like Ubermenschen type people who Absolutely. have like live longer who do that who are the ones who are equipped to wield this power and who can shepherd the change into our like Jetsons ass future whatever. He's all. I mean, he he is like. You know, to you or I, you might think like, oh, well, that sounds insane. Like, he could just look it up on the internet to see that, like, yeah, the blood of a younger person does not make you, like, live longer or anything like that. Although I still think that's how Keith Richards cured himself of heroin addiction. But uh, he, he's also invested in, on something that, that Liz and I have talked about on the show before, uh, the Seasteading Institute and Humanity Plus and, I believe, Alcor Institute. It's the life extension thing that Jeffrey Epstein was talking about freezing his penis and his head with. In fact, Epstein was involved with a lot of the uh, of these organizations, Humanity Plus in particular, which of course Patrick Friedman, uh, uh, Milton Friedman's grandson, was on the board of, and who got really mad at me for mentioning that on the because <laughs> he's a fucking baby. Um. I think that there's also with Teal, you know, like a real like he's never left childhood, basically. Like he named his companies and a lot of his the stuff after like Lord of the Rings references. There was that Star Wars uh, reference that you brought up earlier, but also the flying cars stuff and like the idea of like what a breakthrough is and everything. On the one hand, like he's a smart guy and he knows that like, yeah, it's like Facebook is like just basically like a giant ad marketplace and that's what makes stuff worth a billion dollars and that's how I get rich. But he still talks about like fucking flying cars are not happening so like what 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 accounts for the disparity there and i think it's because like the story that he tells himself about like this really special future on some level he has to just know is like that's that's just a story like that's not going to happen and instead what we have is like this world of scarce resources and you've just got to dominate to survive and so I think that like the future bullshit, it is just like it's all like bullshit because on some level, like as evidenced by his actual actions, he knows that he believes that uh, you know he has the secret knowledge that it's really dog eat dog, and only a will to power is what lasts. In Well, I think, like, you know, I mentioned 
uh, previously, like there's like a couple strands that he kind of marries in his thinking. And I think that mm-hmm. what we're getting at is actually what I think is the third strand, which is really important, which is that kind of will to power or like author- authoritarian view. And like we mentioned, like for someone who calls himself a libertarian to then have a kind of authoritarian or sort of, um, you know, neo-monarchist, if you want, view about how um, states should be structured, that sounds like completely incoherent or incompatible, right? And this is where I kind of want to bring in Moldbug because I do think this is important for people to understand. Like, Menchus Moldbug, if you guys don't know who he is, um, his name is Curtis Yarvin. That's his real name, Curtis Yarvin. And he's a tech guy. He started blogging under the name Moldbug, I think in like 2006 or 2007. I can't remember when. Sorry. Um, It was called like, uh, what was his blog? Unqualified Reservations UR, I think is what yep. it's called. Anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, it was 207. Yeah, and okay. And, um, you know, he was kind of like associated with what we called that like neo-reactionary NRX, kind of that kind of got cut, kind of named that. The Dark Enlightenment. Yes, the Dark Enlightenment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And he, you know, he kind of was blogging all this stuff. He is a kind of pretty famous, or like one of his most famous ideas was something called the Cathedral, which is um, pretty much reiterating actually a a pretty basic fundamental Frankfurt School uh, (laughs) theory of how um, different ideological structures influence the world um but he i you know to his credit the cathedral is a very memorable sort of um concise way of understanding those things so you know i'll give him that but anyway um something to understand about like his view and 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 he's a close i mean he's close with teal i mm-hmm. um but yeah. i don't know how much this is reported or or their relationship is reported but i know that you know teal invests heavily in uh, Yarvin's tech project, which is called Urbit, and that you know it was reported that he was kind of mentoring or advising Teal as early as like two two thousand fifteen, I think two thousand sixteen. Um, but so the idea that these that these guys take and the way they kind of marry libertarianism and authoritarianism is. Um, it's a bit paradoxical, but what he's what what Moldbug, Moldbug says is that basically, when you split sovereignty among like three branches of government, right? Like in mm-hmm. a liberal democracy, it's the judiciary, the executive, and the legislature. That when when you when you do that, like theoretically, you're doing that in the name of a more democratic functioning government, right? Checks and balances. Exactly, but in actual existing reality, he says that. By actually splitting sovereignty, what you're doing is, by nature, expanding the state, which infringes on liberty, right, for a libertarian. And so, paradoxically, a libertarian and a libertarian society actually requires um, a sole sovereign who oversees uh, what Mulbug has kind of laid out as a very um, efficient and minimal, but, like, very uh, highly centralized bureaucracy, and if, you know, like, I think one one thing that's kind of interesting, you know, to bring up, my, my roommate was reading a book the other day, and he pointed out to me that in the ninth, for most of the 19th century, the, like, federal government only employed, like, you know, like, like I don't even think, like, a thousand people. Like, I think, like, part of this whole, like, vision, like, the, the way in which, like, Mencius Moldbug and, like, the specific, like, sort of historical references that I guess that they're sort of, like, he's kind of, like, culling from, and this, like, 
imagined past or what is imagined mm. uh like society or whatever and the past that he points to, to justify it is one that's just like it's like fucking like bedlam and is one in which people you need like you know you need people like peter Thiel to to survive you need people like the big lebowski to get through you know because that's really yeah that <laughs> yeah it kind of comes from this also this like uh i think it's called cameralism which is like an early um it was like kind of a weird confederate to mercantilism right where it was like uh individual city states uh it was like kind of like an 18th century maybe early 19th century um i guess german science you could call it but it was yeah. the science of bureaucracy and it basically like developed what we know is as, as the modern bureaucracy um and it used like like early statistical models and basically like population numbers and data that they could get to create like a very centralized economy within like a landlocked state. And this is like important. I, I know this sounds like maybe this is boring for people listening and this sounds like a lecture or something, but this is really important to understand when we're trying to understand kind of where modern conservative thought is going, because this is in contrast to what else was going on at the time, which is a mercantilist society, which required, um, you know, trade and, 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 and importing raw materials from like a colonial periphery. Right. Mm. And so, um, you know, what these guys envision is this kind of highly efficient, enclosed, what we would now call a city state, I would think. That yeah. has a very centralized economy that is very efficient, run by very efficient bureaucrats, and with a central, uh, you know, all-powerful executive or sovereign. Well, when you when uh, you know, a big question I've always had when when thinking about Palantir is like, well, Peter Thiel is this famous libertarian. Why does he have this company that is? So it sort of it classically invases, uh, invasive on people's civil liberties. And put in this context, it actually it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why I wanted to bring up this like, you know, this idea of this like non-political technocracy, right? And that through efficient management structure and basically a will to power to get it and impose it, that we can not only free everyone from the burden of politics mm -hmm. in their life and all this polarizing bullshit, but we can also free up our social and economic capacity to then realize this insane future that we haven't yet been able to achieve because of so much inefficial, uh, inefficient waste and political nonsense that we have to deal with. Which is like a straight line to the other person that haunts Liz's nightmares which is Jeff Bezos. Because exactly. if there's anybody in the world that you can point to who has like done this, it's it's him. Because that's what you know, Amazon, Amazon is basically... I mean, you ever want proof that central planning works? Look at fucking Amazon. Like, it's functionally... Or the, like, the Soviet Union. Yeah, I mean... I mean you know, <laughs> you, oh, for a period, yes. Yeah, yes. I, correct. <laughs> the I, the I think fan is... I'm a big fan of central planning. I know, I'm a big fan here. of no, 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 I'm... I'm no, there's no, no disputing it. But it's, I mean, and, and, and this is, you know, part of what's so impressive. I mean, in, in Amazon's case, like, because of the way, like, the American economy is structured, um, like, and, and, you know, lowering, like, getting to the lowest possible price for the greatest amount of convenience um, is, like, you know, the thing that Amazon was, like, architected to do. And yeah. it's, like, like, Jeff Bezos, like, 
upended American society to make that possible. And it doesn't even, you know, it, it doesn't even have to, and he's not even like, you know, accounting for like a majority of commerce or anything. It's not like he runs the world, um, but it's like he's gotten so much of it that even the slice that he's taken off has made him literally the richest person in like centuries. Um, and so to me, that's kind of like, it's sort of like the Peter Thiel stuff is like, we, we do kind of already live in a world that is made by people who act in the way that he thinks they should act. You know, yeah. like even if like Jeff Bezos probably wouldn't call himself like a fellow traveler with uh, Peter Thiel, it is yeah. kind of interesting how it does feel like he is like the the fantasy creature that like that Thiel and Moldbug these people get to. Exactly. That's the funny thing about this is that like Thiel, I think, probably imagines himself to be that person. Moldbug certainly doesn't imagine, I believe, Jeff Bezos to be that person. But Bezos sort of is that person. Or and, and 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 I think in the future, like obviously, you know, things are the way they are right now. But I think in the future, as like anybody listening to this show, or really anybody anywhere, should realize, like things are going to get worse in ways that we can't even imagine, baby. Like things are going to get so much weirder. Uh, you know, it's like this is Amazon has really like this sort of Amazonification of the economy has not been going on for that long. I mean, imagine it in thirty, forty years, um, we're going to start seeing a figure like this who actually like is is thinking it out and has like I, I, or it could be it could be Bezos himself or it could be Teal with this life extension stuff works out. Well, I think we're already like living in it. I mean, the reason I brought up the like um, you know, the with the Cameralist idea about it being these like with these hard borders that it had to be this central closed state is like people have to understand that for a a big part of conservative thought that is that wants to, you know, mm chop up the global supply chains and bring manufacturing back. Like that is one of the animating reasons for, you know, that that there is a, there's a, an economic purpose there, right. For, for closing out the state and walling off the state away from kind of global supply chains. And, and this is an ideology that undergirds it. Um, and I think people tend to overlook that. But, like, another way you can see this, like, animating a lot of our political talks right now is, like, I mean, someone just published a book that's, like, the left case for breaking up the United States, <laughs> which I just, like, <laughs> I, I saw an interview with what whoever this asshole is in the nation, and I, you know, I was reading some of it, and I just, like, couldn't believe how stupid, I mean, and this is, like, a lot of Wait, people... into, like, sectors or zones or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and that shit that you've heard before with the, like, Cascadia and California and, you know, whatever. And yeah. I don't know. I guess no one cares about the South, but whatever. Well, like, or we like, know so what like, the, uh, would happen to the South, I guess. Well, but no one seems to care. Oh, uh, yes, where the majority of black people in the country live. So it's like you can conduct people's war better if you have revolutionary base areas. I mean, possibly. But no, I mean, I, I mean, I, I really want to break this down for people. I mean, you know, I, I've heard people that I, you know, really respect say that they think this is a better way to govern because it's smaller, and they bring up the EU, and they bring up uh, that as an example, which you know, not I'm not going to get into how. Yeah, I'm not going to get into how Nazi I can project just break how the EU is actually a really terrible project. But, um, you know, they bring that up as a governing example of like, okay, it would be so much easier if we just break up the United States because it's become too big to govern or it's inefficient from the, the right perspective or it's anti-democratic from the liberal perspective, whatever they think that means. And so you've get these, all these converging um, 
you know, all these converging arguments for the same thing, which is let's break up the United States into individual governed city states. Now, what gets mistaken here, I just want to like, I, you know, I'm just going to say all this shit because we're talking about it. Like what people forget when they say all this, you have all these little city states that, yeah, would probably be, you know, that would be run by Bezos and Zuckerberg and Teal and whoever, right? Um, not you and me, and it wouldn't be democratic in any way that you're thinking of. But is that like the US dollar and the hegemony of the US dollar would not go away. And so actually what you would then see would be as much like the EU is a centralized executive under the central bank. And now you're seeing an executive of that would be the Fed with a um, which is one of the least transparent organizations or, or like institutions in the fucking government. Like if you think the exec you can't understand how the executive works, you buddy, you have absolutely no idea how the Fed works. This and is a like pro audit the Fed podcast. <laughs> absolutely. No, but like really so is. now you have like both liberals and conservatives arguing from different angles to break up the United States in order to give the central bank basically full executive authority. And like now what we're looking at is actually a future that really does resemble what Teal thinks, what Teal wants, which is um, a highly efficient, basically uh, fully automated luxury state capitalism. And you know, and and the scary thing about Teal is that like, as he kind of repeatedly demonstrates or views himself to be, you know, like, I, I don't, we haven't talked a lot about like his role in like Trump and right wing politics. And I actually think that's kind yeah. of good because in a lot of ways, that's where he's made the least progress and has, yeah. had, the, has, has had the least success. He pulled out but too. I, exactly. He's not, he's not like backing Trump anymore, even if he is backing like intellectually like conservative and right wing. Well, that's because real accelerationists that, are, are uh, backing Biden. So I do what I hear, what I do think it's true actually is that, um, here, I guess maybe I, I can maybe close it out with this. This is an example that um, I was thinking of earlier. It's sort of, you know, like why did Peter Thiel sue Gawker then? Like, what, what was actually the reason? Like, if it wasn't the gay thing, because it's just like, it doesn't make sense, you know? It's not mm-hmm. real. Um, and it turned, you know, when you think about it, it's because of one of the places where Peter Thiel failed. And that was his first project after PayPal, which is he launched a hedge fund called Clarium C- Capital. And Clarium Capital, at its peak, managed like several billion dollars worth of other people's money. I think like nine billion, yeah. And with the crash in 07 into 08, you know, hedge funds are supposed to be prepared. Like the reason that in a recession they don't completely like disappear is that they're supposed to like take positions that can withstand any set of conditions or that can, you know, ultimately will vindicate and reward their opinion, the good ones anyway. And Clarium Capital's portfolio shrank down because of its losses. Everybody started pulling out their money, and it failed. And one of the chroniclers, in the in humiliating, delightful, and, and entertaining fashion of Clarium Capital's demise, was Valleywag. And you know, Peter Thiel, like every other asshole of his nature, is incredibly thin-skinned. And you know, like simply being the journalists who are pointing out and saying, like, "Hey, there's a fire here. Hey, look at this asshole. He's setting his money on fucking fire here." You know, like he punished them for it in a really grotesque and extreme way many years after the fact. But like, you know, those are the kinds of people that we're dealing with. You know, that's he's as good an example of what the enemy is and and how effective they Mm. can be as any of them. Which, by the way, we should say, Peter, if you're listening. Hello. Hello. Hey, Peter. Peter, I am absolutely, and I know I say this a lot on this podcast, but I really mean it. 
I am absolutely willing to betray every single thing that I purport to believe in at the drop of a hat if you either frighten me or pay me. <laughs> you should pay him because then maybe we can get some money. Yeah. <laughs> Give your money to Belden. <laughs> the Belden program needs to see investment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, exactly. that, would actually, that would be pretty funny. Just like filming, like you know, getting you in front of, like you know, pitching the Belden program to Peter Thiel. <laughs> <laughs> but like on Shark Tank. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Belden program on Shark Tank. How do we get the Belden program on Shark Tank? Well, I'm sure that you and I could figure it out through the, you know, our yeah, oh, organizations. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, but oh yeah, sure. Shark Tank. Expensive, but uh, but no? Teal, uh, Teal pays people not to go to college. Uh, I know he pays like $100,000 if you don't go to college. I'm just wondering if that works retroactively. <laughs> and in case, in case it does, then I'm more than willing to settle any lawsuit that comes up from this podcast by just willing to drop my demanding he pay me for that. I think that's a good idea. Well, what have we learned today? I don't know, but we sure have <laughs> talked about a lot of things. Yeah, we yeah. really Noah, did. Noah, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah. I, well, I actually, I, I can't say this uh, while we're recording, but I do know a former Teal fellow. Wait, we're still recording. What? Oh, fuck. <laughs> no, I don't want to know. I do know a normal. He seems like a normal, well-adjusted, semi-well-adjusted enough guy. Uh, Wait. <laughs> By Teal Fellow, do you mean like a 20 to 24-year-old twink at, at, at oh Twin my Peaks Bar in San Francisco? Or do by Teal Fellow, you mean someone who actually did the fellowship? Por que no los dos. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's actually funny. That's funny that you say that. Um, because I was just listening to Mencius Moldbug on a Nazi podcast. <laughs> uh, like an hour before we started this. And the guy was like, I can't remember what it was, but it was like, he was talking about like Jewish Moldbug was talking about like Jewish and wasp influences on foreign policy. And oh the guys God. like the host uh, who described himself as a professional anti-Semite, which which means he's probably not making that much money, uh, said, uh, <laughs> said, por que no los dos. I don't know how to fucking speak Spanish. Uh, said, por que no los dos. And I was like, damn, that's crazy. That guy speaks Spanish. And I was like, well, I guess it kind of makes sense. But it was one of the, I will say this. I will say Anti-Semitism in Spanish, well-known opposite. I will say this. I wouldn't, that's, you know, real uh, well, no, inquisition he, you're making there. <laughs> no, no. But I mean, I mean the fact that he was like very much an yeah, American yeah. nationalist or whatever. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, one thing no that, los that, dos. that, that I found, I found funny was, was Moldbug talks very confidently about a great number of things, but he was, he was, unless I'm out of my fucking mind, totally wrong about Belgium had a position of neutrality in world war one as they did in world war two. And Moldbug says that it was okay for the Germans to kill and hang Belgians, both civilians and franciteurs. The, the, the Belgian guerrillas, I don't know how to pronounce it, but the Belgian guerrillas who were fighting against the Germans because they were breaking the laws of war. But so, that, they invaded a neutral fucking country. It's totally bankrupt. He says it confidently, but wow. no, he's, he's incorrect. He's incorrect. And that just, don't get me started. Wow. I had um, no idea there were guerrillas in Belgium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, uh, well, they didn't win, but, well, I guess they won the war. 
All right, let's wrap this fucking thing up. <laughs> Should we just sign off from here? Yeah, let's do yeah. it. I'm down to do it. Uh, ooh, I don't know how we're what's the rhythm. Of how this do we do be? this? Uh, wait. So how does it? Okay, wait. It goes like this. I'm Liz. I'm Brace, and this is featuring Noah Colwyn. And of course, produced by Young Chomsky. That's how he talks. And this is the True Anon Podcast. And we'll see you next time. Bye bye. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein.